Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Today, I'm going to cover the Iliad by Homer. This is book 38 for my 2023 reading list, and it is the sixth book on the Great Books Reading Project list. Goddess, sing of the cataclysmic wrath of great Achilles, son of Peleus, which caused the Greeks immeasurable pain and sent so many noble souls of heroes to Hades, and made men the spoils of dogs, a banquet for the birds. And so the plan of Zeus unfolded, starting with the conflict between great Agamemnon, lord of men, and glorious Achilles. Well, that is the first paragraph of the Iliad, and that is the translation done by Emily Wilson, which just came out in September of this year, 2023. And I'm going to get into that, the version I read and all of that, but I'm going to move that to segment three of this episode. Segment two, I'll cover the one thing, my one key takeaway, the thing that I'm still thinking about after having read the Iliad. But in segment one here, I just want to dig in right away and talk about four things that that I just thought were amazing as I read through the Iliad. So let's get started. The first is, is uh, two th- two threads that just were brilliantly woven throughout this entire epic, and in I you just heard about these threads. They are in the first paragraph of the epic. So Homer introduces them immediately, and I think we're meant to look for these throughout the rest of the epic. So the first is is the very first word of the epic, which in, in Greek would, is wrath or rage or anger. And that, that is the very first word of the epic. So the wrath of Achilles. And the reason this stuck out to me is, is because there, there's, there's this idea that starting with the conflict between great Agamemnon, Lord of Men, and glorious Achilles. But we're talking about the Trojan War, and that is not the start of this conflict. So why is Homer saying that the start of the conflict is between Agamemnon and Achilles? Wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it rather be the abduction of Helen out of Argos and uh, abducted to Troy. Wouldn't that be the start? Wouldn't that be a better starting place in this epic? And so right away, it, it, it struck me. I, I, I thought I'd be reading about Helen going right into this, not, uh, not this, this other thing, not this wrath of Achilles. So immediately it stuck out, and then I just wanted to kind of follow that throughout the, the, the epic. Is Homer a reliable narrator here? Is, is he telling the truth? Is, is this indeed the wrath of Achilles? Is this indeed the, the driver of the narrative? And you will see examples throughout the Iliad. If, if you've not read it, you will see examples of the wrath of Achilles throughout. And so you can make that decision, you know, if, if, is this really, is this really the starting uh, point for this conflict between Agamemnon and, and Achilles. Uh, what what role does the wrath of Achilles play in the Iliad? The second one is this this idea of the unfolding plan of Zeus, kind of the the chief god of of the of the the Greek pantheon. Does Zeus have this kind of control? Um, it, it, in in Emily Wilson's translation here, the the it says the plan of Zeus unfolded, and Robert. Fagels translates it as the the will of Zeus. Is is that the driving force? Is it the wrath of Achilles? Is it 
Zeus's plan? Is it those two things working in tandem? And then just in, in this idea of an unfolding plan of Zeus, I, I, I just got really interested in that. And, and it's, it, it is throughout the epic, in every book of the epic, there's 24 books of the Iliad, and you just see this throughout. And so if you've never read the Iliad, you could, you could take these two ideas and just watch them throughout the epic. That, that'd be a good framework for, for an initial reading of the Iliad. But it got me thinking, so if the plan of Zeus is unfolding, what does that mean? Does Zeus just kind of let things happen? Does he let the other gods and humans, does he let them make their choices and then kind of work all those things together for his plan? Or is Zeus uh, sort of a puppet master just pulling strings for the other gods and the humans and, you know, they, they just do whatever he, he wants them to do? And what, the, what you see immediately is there, there's not kind of this overarching framework for how Zeus behaves and in the sense that he acts very much like humans. He is, is ruled by passions. He, he does things based on what other gods do. And you're just kind of wondering, is, is there a plan? Is, is there a plan that is unfolding? Does Zeus even have a plan in his head? And so it's a great question. It's a great thing to watch throughout this epic. And there are just countless examples throughout the book about the plan, the direction, the, the will of Zeus. So I, I, I actually will cover this again when I get into the one thing, because these two threads are woven throughout, and then at the end of the story, they come together in, in a way that just amazed me. And so that, that I'll get into that in the next segment. But, um, but yeah, first thing here is just these, these two threads I watched throughout the epic, the wrath of Achilles and the unfolding plan of Zeus. Second of four things here in this this first second uh, segment is what's called the embassy. So to set the stage, we're in book nine now, and Achilles, the wrath of Achilles, is playing its part because he is so angry he will not join the other Greeks in battle, and the Greeks need him. Achilles is the greatest warrior. They need him to be there. The Trojans are gaining ground. It's not a good situation. And they need Achilles' help. So Agamemnon, the, the ruler of the Greeks, he, he has three people go and try to appease Achilles, to get him to join the fight. And these three people are Odysseus. Uh, we'll see him again in, in the next book, uh, which is all about Odysseus, uh, the Odyssey by Homer. We've got Ajax, and then we've got Phoenix. So these three men are sent to, with, with the, the idea and the promise of gifts from Agamemnon. So he's going to give Achilles women, he's going to give him power, he's going to give him his own daughter after this war, and he's going to give him kingdoms uh, af afterwards if he will join the battle. But Agamemnon doesn't go, he just sends these, these three guys. So I'm going to read a couple pieces from, this is actually from a book called The War That Killed Achilles, and I read this after I read The Iliad. This one's by Caroline Alexander, who, who has a translation out there of The Iliad as well. But it just kind of set the stage for, for what's going on here with this embassy. What does Achilles want? The, the withdrawal of an angry hero from his people is a standard motif in both folk tale and epic, a motif that presupposes, however, the angered hero's eventual appeasement and return. 
The failure of the embassy to appease Achilles, then, represents a shocking, dramatic break with tradition. Achilles, moreover, not only rejects the embassy, but, as will be seen, goes further, challenging the very premise of the heroic way of life, which is to say the heroic way of war that Epic traditionally extols. End quote. So, this this embassy that it, it does not work the uh achilles doesn't want what they have to offer they try other methods they have phoenix kind of plead with with achilles phoenix has known achilles for a very long time that doesn't work and so this this general motif of the heroic epic uh it it it, it has a problem here it's not moving in the right direction as an epic should. So Caroline Alexander, a few pages later, says this. Here was a hero with both the nature and the stature to think and speak as an individual, to stand apart and challenge heroic convention. In the hyperstated mortality of Achilles lay the origins of something potentially greater than even, even the epic. And that was tragedy. Above all, Achilles afforded Homer, the tradition's last poet, the means by which the epic could convincingly be taken into a new direction. Through Achilles, the ancient story of the Trojan War could not culminate as an epic extolling martial glory, but as a dark portrayal of the cost of war, even to its greatest and most glorified hero. End quote. So what we have here is the the traditional way it, it it if you think of like the traditional adventure movie that we have it it kind of follows a script we 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 know what's going to happen or, or take the hallmark movie we know how a, a hallmark movie is going to go uh and that's the heroic epic should go this certain direction if achilles is angry and he withdraws the the expectation is that these people go they they present achilles with with gifts he comes back in they all live happily ever after and Achilles goes and just, you know, kills all the other people on the other side. Well, that doesn't happen and it doesn't work. And here, as uh, Caroline Alexander mentions, we have the beginnings of a shift from epic poetry into tragedy. After Homer, we have uh, authors such as Oshlus, Euripides, and Sophocles, who are, are known as three of the greatest four tragedy writers we've ever had, uh, with, with Shakespeare being the fourth. What if, what if uh, Homer was the one that kind of moved in that direction? Kind of reminded me, I, I, I jumped uh, ahead to Sappho in terms of um, when, when I should have read Sappho, but I, I read Sappho and... and in the introduction there, they, they said Sappho was, was the person, was the author credited with making the shift from epic poetry, the, the Homeric epic, to lyric poetry. And so here we've got Homer, even within the epic, the, the, the epic poetry, even within that kind of moving to a different stage of tragedy. And I thought that was just a neat thing to consider. Now, the third of four things here is uh, comes in book six, and this is where Hector and Andromache, uh, Androm- where uh, the, a scene between them. So it's 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 taking us away from battle, and it's putting us in this scene that's taking place within Troy. So Hector is the son of Priam. Priam is the king of Troy, and here's Hector with his wife Andromache, and their son is in the room as well. 
And Andromache is just pleading with Hector, please stay with us. Uh, if, if our city is attacked by the Greeks, I will be taken away. Our son will be killed. I will be raped. I will be uh, become a servant for someone for the rest of their lives. Please stay here. Do not go back out to the battlefield. And Hector cannot do that. He, he, wants, he wants glory. He wants to be out on the battlefield. And he, he, he has this inkling that, that things may not go well. He doesn't even want to be there to hear the, the screams of his wife. And, and so within this context, uh, Hector comes up to his son. And, and let me just read what happens here. Again, this is in book six. The noble Hector reached towards his son. The baby wailed and wiggled back to snuggle into his well-groomed nurse's lap and dress. The child was scared by how his father looked, shocked at the terrifying horsehair plume that nodded at the top part of his helmet. His loving father and his mother laughed. Hector immediately took off his helmet and put it on the ground. It glittered brightly. Then glorious Hector kissed his darling son and took him in his arms to rock and cuddle and prayed to Zeus and all the other gods. End quote. Uh, then it goes into his prayer to to Zeus. But this scene is, is it's one of the more popular scenes from the Iliad, the more, one of the more well known. And just you know, when you're reading it, it's so striking. And I think the reason it's so striking is is Hector's talking about this glory. He w- he wants to get back on the battlefield, and his his young son looks at him and is horrified. And it's, it's such a poignant scene because it's almost as if this is not natural. His son seeing him in all of his armor, his, you know, getting ready to go out to war. That is a horrifying thing to this, this innocent young child. It's not natural. And yet, as Caroline Alexander points out in her book, it, it is natural. It's natural in this sense, and, and, and here I quote her. If we took any period of 100 years in the last 5,000, it has been calculated we could expect, on average, 94 of these years to be occupied with large-scale conflicts in one or more parts of the world, end quote. End quote. So of, of any 100-year period in, la, in the last 5,000 years, 94 of those years, so 94% of the time, there would be some sort of a large-scale conflict going on in at least one part of the world. I mean, just think back in your life. I mean, we're we're um, we're in the midst of a couple big conflicts right now. Uh, we've had we've had others in the last in my lifetime in the last forty-three years. There there have been many conflicts, and even having relative peace in in certain parts of the world, th- there is conflict going on in at least one part of the world. And for that to be 94% of the time, for just, you know, peace to rule 6% of the time, that's a very small amount. The The standard operating procedure of the world is to be at war, and yet something's not right about it. It is, it is, it's not natural. And this scene of a son just being horrified by war, it, it's just, it really puts it into perspective. It made me think of a book I read the first year of this reading project where they're talking about war. They said, if we could just bottle this, they're, they're on the battle scene. If we could just bottle this up, the, the horror, the smells, the, the, the grief, the pain, if we could bottle this up, 
take it back to Congress, to Parliament. And, and as these powers are debating whether or not to go to war, you would just open up this jar and let that smell permeate the room. And maybe that would stop these wars. Maybe that would stop these, uh, these people, these men, these women making the decision to go to war. Maybe it would make them rethink it. And, and I, I've been thinking about that lately. And I just wonder, like even in our time right now with, with things heating up in the Middle East, would that help? It just seems like, it seems like passions are so strong right now that that, that wouldn't even help. Like opening this jar and just smelling and, and being confronted with the horror. It wouldn't help. The passions are too strong. And yet there's, almost, there's something about this scene of a son horrified by his father, uh, scared at how his father looked, shocked at the terrifying horsehair plume. There, there's almost something more poignant about that scene than even this idea of a jar being opened up as as people make decisions. So again, just a, a scene that stuck out from from this book. Now, the fourth of four things here, and I, I, I became a part of a tutorial about the Iliad and the Odyssey. And there were just, the stars aligned in so many different ways of the timing of reading the Iliad here and in the Odyssey. But I put my name in to be part of a Catherine Project uh, group, a reading group about the, the Iliad. And I didn't get in. And I was really disappointed, but I, and I had forgotten this, but I'd put uh, as a secondary choice to be become part of a tutorial about the Iliad and the Odyssey. And I got into that and, th and I got noticed uh, or notified a couple weeks later. So as I've been reading the Iliad here and, and uh, as I go into to the Odyssey next, I I'm weekly meeting with a group of four students and a professor, and we are talking about the Iliad. And then we'll get into the Odyssey uh, probably later this month. And that, that has been so helpful. A, a lot of what I'm sharing here has has been from those discussions. And it, it just, it's been an incredible experience, especially with such a small group. But in one of the sessions, the the moderator, Dr. Guthrie, she's she's in in Canada. She asked a question, and, and I, I just knew immediately that, that this was going to be a question that I would be thinking about a lot, not just for the Iliad, but just kind of going forward. This is this is one of those questions that uh, it's there's no there's not an easy answer. It's one of those where that where where you really have to think about it. But the 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 great thing about this question that I'm about to share is that you can you can take this question as a framework in reading the Iliad. So I wanted to share this this question because it's you see examples throughout the Iliad. And the question is this: What gives men more free will? Is it being under brute force, or is it through, uh, under, being under persuasion? So let me let me kind of flush that out a little bit more. Where where does humankind have more free will? If if they are in a situation where there is a absolute dictator, and that dictator is forcing people to do certain things, what level of what level of free will do those people have? But on the flip side, if people are being persuaded, and persuaded in a way that they perhaps don't even know that they're being persuaded, or kind of the, the, the other side of this persuasion is seduction. So in the Iliad, you have both of these. You have, you have people being persuaded, you have people being seduced. And maybe on persuasion, there, there's more of this idea that you, you don't know you're being persuaded, especially when the gods are persuading 
men and the gods are persuading through other people. So the gods will take a, a form of a friend of this person and then just say, as they call winged words, they'll say winged words to these, to these people. And it, and it directs the course of action in the, in the Iliad because they're taking what these people say and they don't even realize they're being persuaded. And perhaps with seduction, there, there is kind of this knowledge that, that, okay, I'm being seduced. Uh, I like it, but I'm being seduced. So maybe there's a little more idea of what's going on there, but with, with at least how it's portrayed in a lot of the Iliad, the persuasion is like the person doesn't even know they're being persuaded. So where do, where does humankind have more free will? If they're being forced by brute force or if they're being persuaded? And it's, it's almost this, this idea of where someone knows they're being directed as opposed to where they don't know they're being directed. Where do, does humankind have more, more uh, free will in, in those two scenarios? I loved that question. I thought it was so brilliant. And then just to kind of to carry that with you, if, if you uh, are, are going to read through the Iliad, that could just be one thing that you think of throughout, throughout the, the epic. Where, where do people have more human agency? Where do they have more agency in their decisions? Uh, if they're in a situation where they're being forced to do something or in a situation where they don't know they're being persuaded to do something. So I thought it was a neat question. So that, that, that's, uh, that, that concludes the, the four main ideas. And then in the next segment here, we'll get into the one thing. a warning that there will be spoilers in this segment. You've had 2,500 years to read this epic though, so it's kind of on you. But I, I would suggest that if you've not read it, please hit pause. I, I don't want to ruin it for you. I, I don't want you to to know what's what's going to happen. I mean, you, you, you've heard the basics of of the epic, but I'm going to get into a little spoiler here. So, uh, just, just a warning. This is my one thing. This is the one thing that I cannot stop thinking about after having read the Iliad. And it ties into these two threads that, that I mentioned in, in segment one, the, the, the thread of the wrath of Achilles and the plan or will of Zeus. So, so let me explain. We, we know that there's wrath. Uh, it's, it's mentioned in that first paragraph, and it's wrath of Achilles against Agamemnon. Why? Why, why is there this wrath? What, what's going on? Well, Achilles has been given a prophecy about his life, and it's been given to him by his mother. And the basics are, are, of it are that Achilles will either gain glory in battle and die young, or he will live a long life in peace, but without glory. And you see that Achilles has the, this, this option before. I mean, he's on a ship. He could turn that ship around, go back to Greece, and, and live long in peace, but without any glory. That's, that's not what he wants. He wants to gain this glory, but it will come at a cost. He knows he will die in this Trojan War. That prophecy is playing a huge role in in the epic, um, and so Achilles is looking around and he's staying. He knows he's going to die young. He knows there's glory involved, but there's no glory right now. He's done the so where where this is situated is 
nine to ten years into the Trojan War. So these soldiers have been away from Greece for all that time. They've been doing kind of skirmishes around the area of Troy, and Achilles has done great military deeds in these places in the sense of he, he's, the, he's the best soldier, and he does not feel that he's being compensated properly. And then to top it off, Agamemnon, the, the, the king of the Greeks, has just stolen Achilles' favorite girl. So something is not right. There, there's a problem with this prophecy in Achilles' mind that where's the glory? It does not look like there's any glory right now. And so that's why you have that situation in the embassy that I talked about where Agamemnon sends these three men to try to appease Achilles and he sends all these gifts, but Achilles doesn't want gifts. He knows the prophecy. He would not even be able to experience these gifts because he knows he's going to die young. He wants glory. There's no, no glory to be had. And if Achilles won't come by himself, like in person, this is a, a further diminishing of, of the glory. So further on, Achilles' friend Patroclus is killed. And Achilles goes into just this tremendous grief. Uh, Agamemnon and Achilles meet and they agree to, to just bury the hatchet. So uh, Achilles makes a statement that I, I, I'm just going to, I'm going to get rid of my, my grief or uh, my, my wrath, my, my rage. But he doesn't really do that. Uh, Achilles just kind of shifts his wrath from Agamemnon to Hector, who is the king's king of Troy's son and is the person who killed Patroclus, Achilles' friend. And so Achilles shifts this rage from Agamemnon to Hector and by extension to the whole Trojan army. Achilles then goes on this rampage and just you know, kills so many Trojan soldiers that they, they dam up a river. There are so many bodies in this river. It's just mass, mass slaughter. You, and, and you come to the scene where there's a soldier who knows he's about to get killed. He gets on his knees, hugs the knees of Achilles and begs for mercy. And Achilles does not give him mercy. He, he kills this soldier. Uh, so Achilles eventually kills Hector, and this devastates his father Priam, who is king of Troy. And the next scene, we see Zeus telling Priam to go to Achilles. And let me just read read this here. Zeus orders you to ransom noble Hector and bring Achilles' gifts to please his heart. You have to go alone. No other Trojan may go with you except the one old attendant to drive the trundling wagon pulled by mules in which you can bring back to town again your dead son, killed by glorious Achilles. No fear, no thought of death should trouble you, end quote. So the scene here is that Hector has been killed by Achilles. Achilles takes Hector's body and is just doing awful things to this body. He's dragging it around. He's dragging it around the funeral pyre of, of his friend Patroclus just to like get this rage out of him and it, and it won't leave. I mean, he's just, he just keeps dragging the body around to, to, I, I guess, try to try to help with his wrath or, or to get back at Hector, even though Hector is, is dead. So Priam wants to go recover the body. This is, this is not okay that, that his son, the body of his son is just being dragged around. And so he, he goes and Zeus has him go to Achilles, but the reader at this point should be thinking, why is Zeus doing this? This seems like very bad advice. 
why is Priam being sent with gifts to try to appease Achilles, this wrath of Achilles? This does not sound like a good idea. Agamemnon tried the same thing. He tried to give gifts, and that didn't get very far. And then we're, the very first part of this epic, we're, ta- we're told about the cataclysmic wrath of Achilles. But Zeus knows something more. He knows the character of Achilles. So let me read on. Achilles will not kill you, nor allow anyone else to come inside. You see, he is not mindless, heedless, or ungodly. He will be kind and spare a suppliant. End quote. This, this is through the mouthpiece of, um, of is it Isis? Um, no, not Isis, but uh, it, through the mouthpiece of, of another... Uh, or Iris, uh, through the mouthpiece of Iris, Zeus is telling Priam these things. And he, and he says, go to Achilles, it will be okay, because Achilles is not mindless, he's not heedless, and he's not ungodly. And so Zeus Zeus, uh, Zeus knows Achilles. We're told about the wrath of Achilles. We're shown all these examples of the wrath of Achilles. We're shown uh, uh, a man who is not merciful, even as somebody comes up and hugs his knees. And so what what has changed? Why would Zeus tell Priam to do this? And it's because he knows Achilles. And this is this is where the will of Zeus and the plan uh, the plan of Zeus ties in with that thread of the wrath of Achilles. So let me read, uh, I'm going to switch over to the, this Caroline, Caroline Alexander book, uh, The War That Killed Achilles. Iris is dispatched to Priam by Zeus to tell him to ransom his dear son going down to the ships of the Achaeans and bringing gifts to Achilles, which might soften his anger. As Achilles has shown himself to be wholly resistant to appeasement by gifts, Zeus's strategy seems an odd one. It is a strategy, however, tempered by keen knowledge of the hero. As Zeus tells Iris, Achilles it is no witless man, nor unwatchful, nor is he wicked, but will in all kindness spare one who comes to him as a suppliant. This is the key point here. Zeus's plan then accords with Achilles's essential character, the character he displayed before Patroclus's death. In turn, Priam's first instinctive impulse following the death of his son has been to go to the ships of the Achaeans and there entreat this reckless man of violent deeds. Zeus's directives then do not so much supply the script that Achilles and Priam must enact as provide both stricken men with the means to transcend their grief according to their own almost forgotten natures, end quote. This this is so amazing to me that Zeus has directed these things, uh, not in and again to this idea is this the plan is like are people forced to do this plan or is this just uh, you know kind of persuasion to do this plan? So Zeus's directives n- not so much to supply the script that Achilles and Priam must enact as provide both stricken men with the means to transcend their grief according to their own almost forgotten natures. So Zeus sees past this cataclysmic wrath. He sees past that and knows that Achilles is Achilles is made up of more than this just this cataclysmic wrath. And he bets everything on this by getting Priam to go to him. And they have one of the most memorable scenes in the book. They weep together, the king of Troy and the greatest warrior of the Greeks are in a room together 
and they weep together. They both are full of grief. Priam kisses the hand of the man who killed his son. Here you have the potential to end all of these hostilities. You have the two men in the room. There is a way forward out of this this tragedy, this Trojan War, and it's through this shared grief. And that's not how it ends. That's not, It doesn't end here. You don't have these leaders deciding, uh, and, and Achilles really isn't the leader, uh, Agamemnon is, but you, you don't have, this is not the end. This is not where it stops. Even amidst this touching scene, this this deep grief, uh, the, the father of the son kissing the hand of the man that just killed his son. It's an astonishing scene, but it, 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 and it ties together that will of Zeus, the plan of Zeus with the wrath of Achilles. It wasn't, the, the wrath of Achilles was not the main force. It drove a lot of the narrative, but there was something deeper in Achilles. Zeus knew that. Zeus bet on that in a way and had Priam take an action to go to him and here you you see you see a way out of this this war and and that's the iliad the iliad is it's about war but it's not it's not a glorification of war it is it is the reality of war there are innumerable battle scenes i th- i think i read where there are 250 different individual battles this is a personal war when the men are fighting each other, it is one man who is named fighting another man who is named. This is the nature of battle at the time, the weaponry, and, and uh, you, you know, you're fighting with a sword. You might, you might have a spear where you're, you're getting close, but a lot of it is hand-to-hand. A lot of it is, is weapon-to-weapon, but you are, you're, you're directly in front of that person. You are looking in the, them in the eye. And individuals seek out other individuals to battle them. There are a few scenes where it's just kind of mass slaughter. There's arrows flying, there's spears flying, but at, at the whole, you are seeing this man and Homer tells you who that man is. He tells you who his father is. He tells you where that man is from. And then he tells you the man that he is killing. He tells you his name. He tells you his father's name and he tells you where that person is from. There is not... There, there is not glorification in that. There is tragedy. You get these glimpses of these scenes in in homes of of Hector going back to his wife and child. You see, you see Helen uh, in 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 a scene in in Troy, and you see the devastation that comes. You, we know what is going to happen to Troy. We know that the Trojan horse will come in. The Greeks will be. They'll be hidden in there. They will just annihilate Troy. We know what's coming for these people. And, and that's, that's almost worse. We know that, we know that the women will be, will be violated. They will be taken away. The kids will be thrown out of buildings. This is going to end very badly. And yet in this scene, in these two threads being woven throughout the story, in the unnaturalness of, of war, where you see Hector's son just terrified of his father. You have a way out. You have a way out of this, but it's not taken. 
And that that was just it, it was astonishing. It's it's one of these things I can't even properly describe it, uh, but it's something I will be thinking about for a very long time. I've, I just find myself the last week thinking about this a lot. These these two threads that tied together and and wove their way into book twenty four of this the you know the final book of the Iliad, where these two things come together, and it was just amazing. That is it for this. The one thing now in the next segment, I'll, I'll talk a little bit about the, the versions of the Iliad that I read and uh, different things like that. Well, this is the very first time that I've ever read the Iliad. And the Iliad means, well, as Caroline Alexander says, it, it relates to the fate of the soon-to-be-extinct city of Ilion. And Ilion is another name for Troy. And so the Iliad, the focal point of the title of the book, is this city that's about to be destroyed. And that's one of the brilliant things about the Iliad, is, is it takes part in just a small section of the entire Trojan War. Something that, that surprised me is just the, the, the things we commonly associate with the Trojan War are actually not found in this book. I kept waiting for them, and I'm, I'm thinking, I'm getting very close to the end here. Where is the horse? Where's the Trojan horse? There's no way we're going to have enough time to talk about this. And we don't. It's not in the Iliad. Helen being abducted is not in the Iliad. Uh, some of the other just things you know about these these stories, like Achilles dying, it's not in, in the Iliad. Uh, this takes a very small portion of that Trojan War, but it just kind of begs the question, why did Homer focus on this part. And, and this part of the brilliance of, of this book is, is the part he did focus on and the wrath of Achilles and uh, that, that relationship between Agamemnon and Achilles. Uh, that, that's the focal point of, of this book. So getting into the, the Emily Wilson translation, I shifted some of the things in my reading list this year just to to read this translation. I, I really wanted to, to do the Emily Wilson one. And I had gotten her Odyssey translation. And so once I saw that she was coming out with the Iliad, I wanted to read both of those books by the same translator. And so seeing that it came out in September 26, I actually chronologically, if I'm going from the oldest book to the newest, I should have read Homer before Herodotus and before Sappho, but I moved Herodotus and Sappho before just so I could wait till the September 26 release date. What is amazing, and this is kind of one of the ways that the stars aligned for for the reading of this book, is that I think it was September 24, uh, I'm a business manager at Landmark Booksellers in Franklin, Tennessee, and we got the book in early. In September 24 was the day I saw it at, we, we got it at Landmark, I picked it up, and that was the very day that I had finished the book I was reading before that to where it was now time to start the Iliad. So again, like stars align. Uh, I, I, I did have to shift some things around, but then I didn't think I was going to get the book till the 26th. I got it a few days early on the very day where I was ready for the next book. So that, that was awesome. And so I started directly with the epic itself. I, there's a, a big introduction in Emily Wilson's translation. I skipped that, went right to the Iliad. I wanted to just read it. I didn't want other people's ideas in my head before I read it. So I started with the epic. After I finished the epic, I then went and read the introduction. And just uh, step back here for a second. This this segment is, is more the nitty gritty of, of the book and, and details such as this. I don't have anything to compare the 
Caroline, or sorry, the uh, Emily Wilson translation to. I've got the Caroline Alexander translation here. I've got the Robert Fagels translation here at, at my house. So I, w- I would... I would glance at those every now and then, and then especially with the tutorial that I was a part of, uh, we were reading the Robert Fagel's translation. So in discussions, I, w- I would hear a lot of that. And it, and it was fun to compare the translations and see how Emily Wilson did it compared to Robert Fagel's. And so, yeah, I, I don't, I, I've gotten some, some people ask the question like, well, you know, what, what translation do you recommend? And right now I can't because I've only read one of them. I did, fi- I did find the Emily Wilson translation very easy to read. I liked some of the choices that she made uh, in the sense of using the term Greeks as opposed to uh, as opposed to Achaeans. Uh, so you, you even heard when I was reading some of the Cal- Caroline Alexander quotes that uh, it was Achaeans as, instead of the Greeks. I just like you know something simple like that where Emily Wilson called them the Greeks. Uh, one thing that was difficult was that uh, there's two. She has a numbering system. That And there's two different numbers. So on the left side, there'll be a number. And then on the right side, there's a number. And in the translator's notes at the beginning of the book, she talks about uh, what that is. And in, in the way she put it into iambic pentameter, I guess, uh, if that's the right term, that's the reason these these numbers differ. And they differ from the Robert Fagel's translation. So there's a number in the Robert Fagel's translation. But if I went to that line in the epic, in the Emily Wilson one, it was not exact. And, and it could be anywhere from 5, 10, or even more lines off. So the tutorial I was a part of, they were using the Robert Fagel's translation. When I'm trying to find that same line in the Emily Wilson translation, it wasn't a one-to-one thing. I couldn't say, oh, we're on line 280 in Fagel's and then go over to, to line 280 in Emily Wilson, despite there being two different numbers. So th- that was a little frustrating. So if you're, if you're reading this in a group and they're using a different translation, it might be hard if you're using the Emily Wilson translation to to find your spot. I would eventually find it, but you know, in, in these kind of rapid discussions, it, it was hard to, to find it quickly. Uh, so that, that was my only negative thing about the Wilson translation. Here are a few lines she, she translated. I just thought, you know, this is, this is Homer, but, but there's an art to the translation and, and I thought these were, were wonderful. Who lay on the earth more dearly loved by vultures than their wives. So that's a scene where there's dead bodies. And he said, you know, what the wives are, are, are back home. They are, they're going to find out about their, their loved ones being dead. But right now, the vultures love them more than their wives. These two gods, Zeus and Poseidon, tugged the rope of cruel conflict, pulling it tight to one side and the other. This rope, which could not be untied or broken, untied the limbs of many living men, end quote. The other thing is uh, the the term limb loosening. And that, that showed up in when I read Sappho. And, and again, I wasn't supposed to read Sappho before Homer, but but I did just with the timing of, of the Emily Wilson translation. So there's a, a part in, in uh, one of the poems of Sappho that that impossible predator, Eros, the limb loosener. So Eros is the god of love. And so limb loosening is the uh, in, in the, the sexual act, the limb loosening, the, uh, calling it that. But in, in the notes here in Sappho, it says, in Hesiod's Theogony, Eros is limb loosening, and in Homer, a hero's limbs are loosened in battle 
when he loses consciousness or dies. Sappho combines these traditions as Eros here loosens limbs by dismembering a body. Though it is difficult to determine exactly what rough beast the god Eros is supposed to be, his predator or his predation is both pleasant and painful, and this bitter sweetness characterizes Sappho's erotic songs. Uh, the next paragraph, like a gale smiting an oak, is in essence an epic simile like those which regularly appear in Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. By using this literary device, Sappho again suggests that matters of the heart are comparable to military matters, end quote. I, I didn't realize that until afterward, but I, I saw that term limb loosening in Emily Wilson's translation when, when some of the soldiers would die. She, she doesn't use it a lot, but uh, she did use it, and, and I noticed that right away, and I, I thought of Sappho. And I, so I thought of of the sexual act where with limb loosening, but then here in in the Iliad, it's used in 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 when someone dies, there it's the limb loosening, and I just thought. And, and I, I don't know where it originated. You know, it looks like it might have originated with Hesiod, uh, and then Sappho kind of took it in 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 that other direction. But it's all tied to to Eros, the god of love. But it's brilliant in the sense that it is used in Homer. So if it's used for the sexual act, and then it's used for someone dying in battle, in the Iliad you have the whole thing started with Helen and with. Uh, her being kidnapped and the the sexual aspect of that. You tie that with that created, that was the impetus for the entire Trojan War. And so the, the use of that term limb loosening, both on the sexual and the war, the military, the death side of things, I thought was just brilliant. And again, I, I don't know where it originated. I, I first thought Emily Wilson had done this translation to tie those ideas together, but it, it does look like they were they were there, and, and that term limb loosening was used on both sides. But in 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 the sense of it being used in Iliad, that it's just it's just brilliant. Uh, as part of this great books project, I'm trying to pair a guidebook with each of the great books. So the guidebook, as I mentioned earlier, is The War That Killed Achilles by Caroline Alexander. I highly recommend this book. Uh, you know, I'm doing this tutorial with the Catherine group. And the, if if you're not part of a tutorial or, or a group reading through the Iliad, this is like the next best option. This was like being a part of a reading group because Caroline Alexander... Uh, would just take you through parts, the main parts of the Iliad, and then provide just tremendous insight, like some of the things I read in this episode. So it's like being part of a reading group, but uh, do not read this before you read the Iliad. Read the Iliad first and then read The War That Killed Achilles second. I found this to be an excellent guidebook. Um, it's kind of hit or miss with the guidebooks I'm choosing, but this one was excellent. I'm so glad I chose that. So the, the other thing here is that I did this tutorial. That has been a huge help. We're still in the midst of discussing Iliad, so we have not even finished discussing Iliad yet. And then we'll go into the Odyssey after that. So my plan going forward is uh, it, it, yesterday I started reading the Odyssey. And I read, uh, I started in, and I'm doing the Emily Wilson translation of that as well. I'd originally planned to read another translation of the Iliad immediately after the Emily Wilson one, but I, I want to make sure I get through the, the Odyssey first in time for this tutorial, and then also by the end of, of November to where that's that's the end of 
great books for this year. December, I, I take a what I call winter break and read just some more modern books. So I want to get it done by December. I want to make sure I have enough time to get through the Odyssey. If I finish the Odyssey relatively quickly, I will probably go back to the Iliad. And what I want to do is read the Fitzgerald translation of the, the Odyssey. I, I think it's Robert Fitzgerald. Yeah, Robert Fitzgerald. So I want to do that of, uh, sorry, of the Iliad. Then I will go to the Fitzgerald translation of the Odyssey. And with both of those translations, I also have a a companion guide to the Iliad and to the Odyssey. So I'll probably go through that as well with, with the Fitzgerald. So my my initial reading of the Iliad was to just to really get the story down. I, I, I wanted to, to dig deep and get the story. So as I'm reading the Iliad, I am taking notes in the margin. There's plenty of margin in each page. I loved that. So I'm, I'm kind of rewriting everything that's happening in my own words. And that really helps me just keep in the story and remember what's going on. If, if I forget, I can just kind of look back a few pages, see what just happened in my own words. And then, and then I, I would recap at the end of each chapter, like, here's what happened in this chapter. And they're called books in the Iliad. So there's 24 books. I would recap there. The main ideas, I would flip to the very back of the book and write them in the very back. So I, I have like two and a half pages of notes in the very back of the book as well. I would, um, after all this, I, I transferred a lot of the notes into a journal that I keep. And again, that, that's kind of the main things I always want to remember about the book. So that, that really helped me, that, that taking of notes while I was reading, underlining, starring, um, just really interacting with the book, like taking that pen and just marking up the book as much as possible. That helped me a ton. There is one thing I'm still kind of considering doing at the very end of this all, and that is to watch the movie Troy. I don't recall if I watched that. It's the one where uh, Brad Pitt is Achilles, and yeah, there's mixed reviews on the movie. I, I usually try to avoid movies. I, I, I kind of want the pictures I have in my head as I'm reading to be there as opposed to ones put in my head by movies, but it just looks cool, and it would be kind of fun just to, to see what at least these these directors thought of uh, what what the armor would have been like, the weapons, and how this battle would have gone down. I'm sure it's they butchered the story in parts, you know, that it's not true to the book or whatever. But I, I kind of want to read that. So that that may be the final thing I I do. I'm still still deciding. If you've seen the movie and you suggest it, please please let me know. Want to cover in. Just my initial reaction real quick, and then I'll close out with reading stats, and, and we'll, we'll close out the episode. As I mentioned before, I, w- I was very surprised at the scope of the book. I, I, I assumed going in that the very first lines would be about Helen being abducted, because that is the start of the Trojan War. I did not know that the, Tro- this, the Iliad is just a small part. It's nine to 10 years into the actual Trojan War, and that's where you're placed. We don't see the Trojan horse in this book. We don't see Achilles die, and we don't see Helen being abducted. And I now I think that's really cool, but at first I was like, what's going on here? I, I thought I thought we were getting the whole Trojan War here. So that, that's one thing that, that surprised me. But it, it kind of, 
in a, in an episode a few ago, I, I mentioned reading mythology by Edith Hamilton. And the reason I suggested that before reading some of these epics is she compiles all the stories. And in these epics and the tragedies, from what I understand, you, you see a small part, you get little glimpses of the stories of the gods and, and that sort of thing. But you don't get the full picture in, in any of these epics. But what Edith, Edith Hamilton did was to compile all these stories. So it, it's important to know the stories going in to these epics because the epics are referencing them, but they're not telling you, hey, this is the whole, th- the whole story that happened. And you can get by without knowing that, but it just enhances the reading of the Iliad if you can go in kind of knowing the full story of the Trojan War and, and to know that you're, just, you're getting a small section of this war, but it is framed by Helen being abducted. It is framed by Achilles having the knowledge that he's about to die. And it's framed by the knowledge that Troy is about to be utterly destroyed. And the people you're reading about are about to be decimated. The women you're reading about are about to be raped and become slaves. And the children you're reading about are about to be killed. That just kind of puts a whole different spin on what you're reading, uh, 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 urgency, a, a despair, uh, and, and, and it, it's helpful. It, it, I mean, I, th- I think it's necessary to kind of have that t- going in. I loved every minute reading this book. It, it took me 23 hours and 13 minutes to read through the Iliad. That is not counting the introduction at the beginning. That's just the story. And I, I just, I, I couldn't get enough of it. I, I, I was sad when it ended. I, I just, lo- it was so good. I can't believe I'm 43 and I'd never read this. And it's one of those books that it's grown the more I've thought about it. It's one I want to revisit. I, I hope I can reread it again here in, in November. Um, but if not, I, I, I want to reread it at some point in my life again. The ideas have grown as I've thought about them. I, I find myself just you know driving in the car and, and thinking about certain parts of the story. Some of the things that I mentioned of just that scene with the son being, being horrified at his father in, in war apparel, the, 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 the other scenes of just the, of war, of, of person, personality, person versus person, individual versus individual, not this, not this, you know, 5,000 people died in this battle and this many on this side and this many on this side, but this person fought this person. And that was, that was incredible. I, I, in, in one of those car rides, I was talking to my daughter about the Iliad and she asked me if it, if it was true. I said, well, it's a myth. And she said, oh, so it's not true, but that's not what I meant by myth. By myth, I meant it, it, it's the truest true. And so with that question of, did it happen? Yes. Yes. It happened many times. It may not have happened exactly like this, but the Iliad, it is true on a higher level. And, and to me, that's, that's myth. Like this, this is the truest true. It has happened multiple times throughout history. I love this idea too of a, of a, of a story that's collected over, over time. That's 
that's perhaps oral for a long time before it's ever put down on paper. Stories like Gilgamesh, stories like the Iliad or the Odyssey, they have t- they've had a lot of time to percolate and be performed and and for the ideas to come together before they are written down. And there, there is there are so many deep things in stories like this. So read books like this that that have followed that path. The other big thing that that uh, in terms of an, an initial reaction is just this this is kind of the seminal work about war but it is and it it is it is called epic poetry it is called the the war epic and yet this is not a glorification of war if if you're looking for that it is not uh, it is not in this book you could probably pull certain parts out of it and and have that glorify war but this is this is the the nasty parts of war. This book is a takedown of war. It's reality. It's, this is what happens in war, and it is not pretty. That was surprising. I did. I didn't. I was not expecting that. All right, that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you if you have read the Iliad. If you want to share something that you got out of the Iliad that that you can't stop thinking about, I would love to hear that. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. You know, let me know what you thought about this episode, what you thought about the Iliad, uh, Homer, maybe the Odyssey as well. You can buy this book from Landmark Booksellers. Again, that's where I'm the business manager. I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. If you use the coupon co- code Books of Titans, that'll get you 10% off. And we have the Emily Wilson translation. We have other translation as well, tra- translations as well. I'll link to the Emily Wilson one. I've been pushing that on many people that have come into the store and uh, at different festivals we've been at recently. I've I've always had that book with me and, and, and keep telling people about it, the... Uh, the Wilson translation. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. It's just at Books of Titans. And go to the website. I've, I've got my full reading list back from 2017 all the way up to 2023. I have my great books reading list of, of, two, of over 200 books that I'll be going through over the next 10 years. And I have just a lot of resources to help you find books, how, uh, just ideas on how to, how to read more, how to remember what you read and and things like that. So until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. Mm